Hey, good morning, One Hope and visitors. It's so wonderful to be together again this Sunday morning. This morning, I want to speak on a, on a question. Why don't we pray? Or why don't we pray more? If we do pray, why don't we pray more? Now, I asked this question a few weeks ago to a group of people on WhatsApp, and I got a lot of different responses. But I want you to pause the video. I know we just started, but I'd love you just in little groups, threes and fours, just to talk about that and ask the question personally. So share with your group, why don't you pray? And so here's some of the answers I got back. One of the big ones, time. I just don't have time to pray. I don't know where to fit it in. I've got little kids. My life is crazy. My business is going nuts right now. The, the other one was distraction. I try to pray, but when I pray, I just I start thinking about this or the football or the weekend or whatever it may be. Some people said it's difficult. It's hard. I try to pray, but man, it's so tough and I feel resisted and I feel like when I pray, I actually almost make more trouble in my life. Someone said it feels vague. It's ambiguous. It's difficult to pray. Some were saying, I feel like I need to do. Like my, I want to achieve and prayer feels so passive. It feels so, so sedentary. Uh, some say, I, I just forget. And then there were a number who said, I don't know how to pray. And if you're in that last one, you're not sure how to pray. Can I really encourage you to make sure that you're here for the next two weeks of this series. Bates and I are going to be talking about how the scripture teaches us to pray. But what surprised me the most is that in all of the answers I received, I can't remember one that I think is biblically the true diagnosis for our lack of prayer. I think that many, even in your groups, would have thought it, but I'd be quite amazed if anyone actually was bold enough to say, this is why I don't pray. And I believe that the biblical diagnosis, the true diagnosis for a lack of prayer is faithlessness. We don't pray because we lack faith. And I think it's that simple. I think it's us saying, God, I don't actually believe you can. I think it's us saying, God, I don't trust that you will. And we wouldn't dare say this, but I think in many hearts, even Jesus-loving Christian hearts, the truth is that some part of us thinks, what difference would it make anyway? And so what I'm going to be contending for this morning is that we don't see God rightly. We don't see God for who He is, either in His character, which is who God is, His generosity, His mercy, His goodness, His kindness, or in His ability, in His power, in His omnipotence. And that means all-powerful. It means if you took all the powers that ever existed in the world ever and you brought them all and piled them in a big heap and put God next to them, God would be a million times bigger, more powerful than any of those things that we could think or imagine. And so we don't pray or we pray very little and we pray half-assed prayers, distracted prayers, or we simply do it ourselves, which is really communicating what? Right? I don't think you're going to do it, God. I'm going to get on with it because I don't think you're actually going to do this thing, God. Let me say it another way around. If I told you that there was a being so powerful that he could just take a word and create whatever he wanted to. If I told you that he was everywhere all the time, always knows everything and cares about what's going on in your life and in everybody else's life all at the same time. If I told you that he could do absolutely anything he wanted to and even far beyond what we could imagine or even dream, he could do it. But not like in a Aladdin's 
kind of genie kind of way. No, not like some randomly fulfilling the whimsical wishes of a, of a child, but rather he has this massive and beautiful plan that he's been rolling out in the universe for centuries. And he's saying, you can come and be part of my plan, but I'm going to answer prayers that are part of this plan and that actually are good for you and your family. So even in his answering of your requests, he's not just a genie, he even cares about what it is that's good for you and your family and that he really, really loves you and that he wants you to have this childlike faith and come to him with the same kind of trust that you'd come to a good earthly dad. Now, if I told you all of that and you really, truly were able to believe it to the core of your being, no doubt, if you could believe it with no uncertainty that this being, this person, was able to do all of those things that I've been talking about. Let me ask you this. Would you find time? Would I find time to ask him things? Would I, would I be keen to get to know him, to spend time with him, to communicate with him, to learn, just to listen and, and hear him? Just like from all your experience and all your wisdom, can you speak to me? Would you say it's, it's too difficult? I just, I just can't. You know what, Paul, I'd love to, but I just can't concentrate. It's so great that there's this being, and I really, truly believe he's there, but I just can't concentrate. Yeah, I thought so. It's the same as me, right? Do you see the nature of our problem? The nature of our problem is faith. Now, let me just say right now that I am employed by wonderful people in this church who support us in order to preach God's word and to spend my time in preaching and in prayer. Those are two of my primary jobs, preaching, prayer, and pastoring, right? Now, prayer is a part of what I am commissioned. It's part of my job, what I'm supposed to do daily. But I want to admit that it's one of my hardest daily battlegrounds. Can I just admit that? I want to admit that only in the past 18 months have I really begun to feel God growing muscle on me around grasping a rhythm of deep, regular prayer. So I'm not shouting at you this morning. I'm right in the trenches with you trying to learn. So let's get to James and let's unpack this from God's word. Let me read James 1 verse 2 to 8 for us. I'm reading out of the ESV. James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Another good word there is perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach or without finding fault, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let me pray for you. Father, I want to thank you that your word cuts us into our hearts, that it challenges us, that it confronts us, but that it also comforts us, that it also is, is merciful over us and speaks life and joy and encouragement into our hearts. And I ask that you would do all of those things as we come to your word this morning. Lord, we want to just admit again that we are under your word. We do not lord over your word, picking and criticizing and looking for parts that we like. Lord, no, not at all. We are under submitted to your word. Speak to us. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear your voice. We want to hear your words in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Now, what you need to know about James and the people that he's writing to is that James was the brother of Jesus writing to Jewish Christians, but these Christians are in a bad spiritual state. They are critical. If you go and read the book of James, they discriminating against others. They terrible with their tongue. They're saying all sorts of things. They're not watching their tongue at all. They're proud. They like to take the best seats and they're fighting for the best seats and they're putting the poor in the worst seats. But they're also facing trials and they're facing troubles and God is not answering their prayers. And it would be fair to say that success is not coming their way. Now, James is actually a pretty gritty book. When you read it, there's much more in your face than when you realize when you first read it. It's not a book about some ideas to someone somewhere. No, James knows the people that he's writing to and he's listing specific stuff they're doing wrong. And he's saying, guys, not cool. And God is not pleased with the way that you're living your lives. And when you read it like that, you're like, whoa, this is pretty hardcore. Anyway, so the way to view James is a spiritual recovery for the backslider. It's like a tow truck. That's, it's, it's, a, it's a guide to spiritual living. It's coming when you've broken down on the side of the road and it's a tow truck coming to collect you. But these backsliders are respectable backsliders. And what I mean by that is that they're doing sins that many of us would consider respectable. A little bit of gossip here, a bit of slander there, a bit of arrogance there, a bit of greed there. They haven't like, you know, blown up their lives. They haven't gone out and had an affair or embezzled a bank. So they, I would call them respectable backsliders, right? So you've got the context. So they're a bit far from God. Are they Christians? Yes, but drifting into an unhealthy spiritual place. Now to them, the first thing that James says to these suffering, hurting, far from God Christians, James says, I want you to count it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you meet trials of all sorts of trials. There's going to be various trials, temptations, difficulties, all sorts of things. I want you to be joyful when you're facing that. <laughs> and it's like, James, in the state that I'm in, do you think I really want to hear that? And he carries on and he says, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. This is good for you guys. It's producing perseverance. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Let it work on you, Jewish Christians. Let it work on you that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What James is actually saying here, though, is so Amazing. He's saying, Christians, you should be so grateful that these trials and troubles are happening in your life because God loves you so much that He's trying to bring you back. He's trying to take you out of your backsliding ways and pull you back to a faith that produces perseverance. And that's why he's saying, you should have so much joy, guys. This is God's kindness to you. These trials and these troubles that you're facing. He's saying God is going to allow suffering and trials to pull you out, to wake you up. It's like you're a plane that's nosediving and God in His grace is, is trying to pull you out of the nosedive, Jewish Christians. I mean, this is what Johannes was preaching on last week, right? I'm so proud of Johannes. It's his third preach, preaching powerfully, preaching so well, just so comfortable. Sorry, I just had to say that in the middle of my preach. But sometimes God is going to allow suffering and trials and difficult things to happen in our lives because he has a more precious promise in mind. He has something more beautiful for us than simply taking us out of the trouble or taking us out of the trial or making it not so owie. In our lives. I mean, this is the great promise of Romans 8, verse 28, right? All things work together for those who love God. All things work together. You got it? 
Wake up, Christians, he's saying. This is what James, this is the context. Now, I'm going to make four points from the text. The first one is this. We are invited to recognize our need. Look at verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, if any of you lacks wisdom, Remember the verse just before this was about suffering and trial and joy and considering it joy. And James is saying, guys, it's going to be hard to count it all joy. I know it is. And so we need something else. We need to hold on. Yes, we need perseverance. We need steadfastness, but it's only going to get us so far. What else do we need? James is saying, you also need wisdom. You also need wisdom. And in that light bulb moment, what happens is is these Jewish Christians are hopefully going, oh, yes, we've forgotten. We lack wisdom. We lack wisdom. We have a need. And James's goal is to help these Christians realize what their actual true spiritual state is. The fascinating thing about being someone who's walking away from God or backsliding is how blinding it is. It's a bit like love in that, in that way. It's really tough to come to the admission that we're actually not doing that well with God. And so what usually happens is that someone would confront us and say, as the Bible instructs us, man, there's something in your life that's not so cool. But usually because it's so hard for us to see, we get offended. And then when we get offended, it's not long. And we're sitting in church and we're like critical. And eventually we say like, I'm leaving this church. I hate this church. So we leave the church. But actually it's about an offense because something was going on in our hearts. And then we begin to blame that church. If you, do you think that person had a right to speak into my life? Can you believe these, can you believe these guys? Anyway, that's just a little side note. But we are invited firstly to recognize our need. Secondly, we're encouraged that the remedy or the answer is prayer. That's where we find help. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask. Let him ask God. There is a vaccine. There is a help for our condition. This is is the point. They, They are in trouble, but there's hope. God is speaking to them through James. If they will only listen. Maybe they'll see their need. Maybe they will pray and confess their lack to God and say, God, I don't have wisdom. And it's very obvious because I'm walking away from you, which is the stupidest thing I could ever do. Therefore, proving that I so badly lack wisdom. And they cry out to him and say, God, please give me wisdom. And God answers, says James. It says, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach the ESV says the NIV says without finding fault and it will be given to him it will see this is the character of God he's so gracious guys God is so generous so kind that even though these Jewish Christians have backslidden and they're sinning God is willing to be generous to them Remember that right up front, I'm arguing that we pray or we don't pray. And when we do pray, it's this kind of distracted, haven't really got time, like these anemic, weak prayers. And I'm saying, man, guys, what we need to see is that we don't see God for who He is. This is what James is talking about here, the character of God, the goodness of God, who gives generously to all and He doesn't find fault with you. He's going to give it to you. And not only is He generous, but even more than that, God does not reproach us when we come to Him. And this is a surprise, right, in the text. If you understand that these guys are backsliding and critical and doing all these things, if they come to God, you think He would rebuke them. He has every right to go moralistic on them. 
But he doesn't. He doesn't say, what are you coming to me for? You should be ashamed of yourself. He doesn't do what we often do with our children, a moralistic behavior kind of thing. Go sort yourself out and then come back to me and then maybe, then maybe I'll consider the thing you're asking for. See, maybe other Christians won't, won't display this quite as well as God, but God shows this generosity every time. And now I want to get to the real emphasis for the day, the real, the real heart of this preach. Is the, is the next few verses. Where, and this is the third point. We must pray in faith. We must pray in faith. And this is the major requirement that James lays before these Christians. He says, don't doubt. Don't doubt. Let's read it. But, verse 6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. And a part of me reads that and goes, James, why did you have to go and put that in there? You were doing so well. The promise in verse 5 is so great. Let's just leave it with like, if I lack wisdom, I go to God and He's generous and He gives me wisdom and He doesn't look at my faults. Why do you have to like, just leave it there, James. Pause the video. In your groups, discuss why did James add this verse? Why do you think James added this verse? What does it help us to see in this James text that we're reading? Right, well, I wish I could have leaned into your group and heard the answers and heard the discussion going on around what James is trying to do here. I mean, is, is James, who's been at pains to show us that God is not moralistic and God does not find fault in us or reproach us, is he suddenly doing like a U-turn here? And is he suddenly saying like, you should be better, man. Don't doubt. What's wrong with you? And suddenly we feel that guilt piling back onto us. Well, I'm glad to say this morning that that would be a misreading of the text. So let's, let's zoom out a click and let's remember again what James is doing. James is in diagnostic mode. He's diagnosing, he's trying to show these Jewish Christians that perhaps they have unintentionally wandered away from God. They are wandering in this backslidden state and he's saying, guys, guys, can't you see if he gives generously to all. Did you notice in verse 5 that little use of the word all? That means no qualifications are required, no prior experience. We can just come and we can just ask God. And when we do, He doesn't even find fault with us, even though, hand up, there's so much fault to be found. If He generously does this, then James is saying, guys, then there's no room for doubt. And what He's doing is He's diagnosing still that actually in their hearts, there's this issue of doubt toward God. Let me state it another way. God is very willing to give them wisdom, says James. God wants to give you wisdom. He's generous with his wisdom. And that is a promise. It's one of the great promises of Scripture. This text, James chapter 1 and verse 5. But he's saying to them, if you doubt that, if you doubt that God actually wants to generously give you wisdom, you're essentially refusing to believe that God's promise to be generous to everyone, including you, in your sinful state, you're doubting that God's promise is true. This is so critical because it gets to the heart of it. James is not speaking about how we must behave, but rather of who we believe God is to be. 
That's what James is doing. He's speaking about who we believe God to be. And he's saying, what is the point? What is the point of asking God if you don't actually believe that he's willing or able to do anything about it? You're kind of saying, well, God, I'm just going to, I'll just give a prayer anyway, because what harm can it do? But really, I don't think you're actually going to answer this prayer. And we just pray with these faithless hearts. And James is saying, man, that is an indicator of who you believe God to be. And so the real issue in this text is about the promise maker. Let me explain it to you like this. The promise maker. A promise is only as good as the person who makes the promise, right? And we have experience of this. You might have a a mom or dad or a friend who when they make a promise to you, you kind of think, yeah, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll see if that happens. Why is that? Because you've had experience of that person not being true to their promise. And the promise links to the person making the promise, right? So to ask God and then to doubt is to say, God... I don't actually really trust you. You say you're the promise-making God. I don't actually believe your promise. I don't think at all that you're a promise-keeping God. You're more like my parents who made a promise and then got divorced. God, you are a promise-breaking God. Or, God, you're like the man who told me that he loved me, then he slept with me, then he broke up with me and went and laughed with all his friends about it. You're a promise-breaking God. Can you see how critical it is what James is doing here? James is trying to say to us that when we pray, we have a promise-keeping God and He's generous and He's good and He will keep His promise. And that's the crux of my message today that you and I, so often like these Christians that James is writing to these Jewish Christians, we so often just like them. I see myself all over the pages of the book of James, all over, with my tongue, with my impatience, with my pride, with so many things, but more especially than any of those things, right here in doubt, right here in my doubt. I don't see God for who He really is. There's a wonderful analogy or a metaphor for this. It's the difference between the microscope and the telescope. And the microscope helps us to see something that's really, really teeny. And suddenly we put it under a microscope and we can see it's got legs and it's got all these other little things going on. And so a a microscope makes something very small, just that little bit bigger. A telescope, on the other hand, lets us see something that's really huge, but really far away. But it's bigger than what we can imagine. It's more impressive than we could ever imagine. And it helps us see it just a little bit closer. Just a little bit closer. And you can't see it properly. And so what I'm contending for this morning is that God is so mighty, so powerful, so huge, but I can't see Him properly. And so I'm asking, I'm saying, God, would you just give me a turn again on the telescope? Would you just let me look through the telescope again that I can see you properly? Now, friends, this is not a a new problem. Turn with me to one of my favorite texts in the book of Job. Some of you would call that book Job. Some of you would call it Job, but actually it's Job. For today anyway, it's Job. And so Job chapter 38. And what's happened is that Job and his friends have been kind of arguing with God. Job is going through incredible suffering. His friends are trying to, you know, help him. We've all had those moments. We've all been in those moments. But I want you to see how Job has a telescope moment with God. Chapter 38. 
Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. If I can just interject, did I say this is one of my favorite texts? It's so sarcastic. It's, it's beautiful. The four or five chapters from Job 38, go read them. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind. Who is this? Who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorant words, he says to Job. Brace yourself like a man because I have some questions for you and you must answer them. Sorry, I'm pointing right at you. You must answer them. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you know so much. Who determined its dimensions and stretched out the surveying line? Who supports its foundations and who laid its cornerstone as the morning stars sang together? Oh, I can't wait, man, to see this on replay. And all the angels shouted for joy. Who kept the sea inside its boundaries as it burst forth from the womb? As I clothed it with clouds and I wrapped it in thick darkness. For I locked it behind the gates, limiting its shores. I said, this far and no further will you come. Here your proud waves must stop. Have you ever commanded Job, Paul, your name? Have you ever commanded the morning to appear and caused the dawn to rise in the east? Have you made daylight spread to the ends of the earth? And he carries on for the whole of chapter 38. And then chapter 39. Do you know when the wild goats give birth? Have you watched as deer? It's so intimate. As deer are born in the wild. And he carries on. Chapter 40. Then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? Come on, where are you now, boy? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Then Job replied to the Lord, I am nothing. How could I ever find the answers? I will cover my mouth with my hand. I have said too much already. I have nothing more to say. But God is not finished with Job, so he carries on. Then the Lord answered Job from the whirlwind, Brace yourself like a man, because I have some questions for you, and you must answer me. Will you discredit my justice and condemn me just to prove you are right? Are you as strong as God? Can you thunder with a voice like his? All right. All right. God's mocking him here. All right. Put on your glory and splendor. Your honor and majesty, give vent to your anger. Let it overflow against the proud. And on God carries for chapter 40 and chapter 41. And then the end in, in chapter 42, it says, Then Job replied to the Lord. This is Job's telescope moment. I now know that you can do anything and no one can stop you. You asked, who is this that questions my wisdom with such ignorance? It is I. Don't you just love that admission from Job? It is I. And I was talking about things I knew nothing about. Things far too wonderful for me. You said, listen, and I will speak. I have some questions for you, and you must answer them. I'd only heard about you before, but now I have seen you with my own eyes. I take back Everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Do you see what happens in this chapter, in these chapters? How Job suddenly sees who God is, and he realizes how crazy his doubts have been. And he goes before God and he says, I spoke and I shouldn't have. I cover my mouth. God, it's me. It was me who was speaking. It's me who needs to answer you like a man. I didn't even understand these things. They're far too big for me, far too wonderful for me. God, I'm sorry. God, I'm sorry. I'm going to repent before you. 
Guys, as I've been learning to pray, I feel like God's taken me on a journey of learning how to pray. I've had some of these telescope moments myself, and I'd love to share them just to encourage you. As I was out under the stars a few months ago, and there were just stars everywhere. It was a beautiful dark night, and I saw stars everywhere. And I just felt the Holy Spirit whispering into my heart the promise that God made to Abraham, where he said, Abraham, your descendants will be as numerous as the stars. And that's a spiritual promise. It's a promise that those who come to follow Jesus Christ, that those who follow the Father, who follow in the way of Jesus, would be more numerous than the stars in the sky and more numerous than the sand on the seashores. And as I looked out at those stars, I felt God breathing freshly that promise into my heart that He gave to Abraham, that He would make every one of those stars would represent a person who's come to faith or who is yet to come to faith, who's yet to come to faith. And in that moment, I cried out for my friends that I've been praying for years. And I said, Father, Father, would you bring them? Would you make them one of your stars? Would you bring them to salvation? Please, God. And I had a telescope moment where I realized again how big how God is and how faithless I am and how much I doubt. And it filled me with courage to pray again. And I've had other moments like that that I could share with you. But we need to pray, guys. We need to pray, Lord, I'm sorry and help me see rightly. Lord, I'm sorry and help me see rightly. And that's my last point out of James chapter 1 this morning. The fourth point, an appropriate response when we see this is repentance. Do you see what Job's telescope did? Did you see what his telescope moment did? He says, it is I. I was talking about things, God, it was me. I knew nothing about. And then he said, God, I'd only heard about you before, but now I've seen you with my own eyes. I take back everything I said and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Guys, it's no small thing to lack faith. It's no small thing to say to the promise-keeping God, God, I don't believe You who've kept your promise for every generation, never made a promise which you did not keep. I don't believe. I don't believe. It's not a a small thing. And this morning, as we look in on these Jewish Christians' lives, are you seeing you? I'm seeing me. Maybe you haven't realized it this morning, but as I'm I'm speaking, the Spirit is convicting and you're saying, Flip, Lord, I think... I think that's me. That's me that's backslidden. All these sins in my life and I'm not even fussed about them. They don't even seem to bother me anymore. That's me. Or maybe you're not ready to go that far yet. But you're definitely saying, I can can see I have doubt in my heart category. I'm in that category. Or maybe you're even watching this morning and you you don't even know if you believe in God. And you're not even at that place yet where you can say, I I wouldn't even call them doubts. I just don't think I, I believe. My encouragement to you is that God is gracious. He's generous to us. He, he gives to us. One of, my, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is Mark chapter 9. And let me just show you in this text how beautifully gracious Jesus is with the doubt of a father who has a son in great trouble. And so while I turn there, the context is that the disciples have been brought this son of this father and they can't cast out this demon, but it's causing him terrible pain. It's throwing him into the fire. It's throwing him into the water. It's trying to kill him. 
and they can't cast this demon out. So they bring him to Jesus and Jesus gets straight to the heart of the matter. It's, it's Mark chapter 9 and verse 19. And he calls it straight for what it is. And he says, guys, this is an issue of faith. This is an issue of faith. So if we pick up in verse 19, Jesus said to them, you, faithful, you faithless people, how long must I be with you? How long must I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought the boy to Jesus. But when the evil spirit saw Jesus, it threw the child into a violent convulsion, convulsion and he fell to the ground, writhing and foaming at the mount, mouth. How long has this been happening? Jesus asked the boy's father. He replied, since he was a little boy, the spirit often throws him into the fire or into water, trying to kill him. Have mercy on us and help us if you can. What do you mean? Jesus says. What do you mean if I can? Jesus asked. I've just been talking about faith, man. I've just been talking about a lack of faith. What do you mean if I can? Anything he says is possible if a person believes. The father instantly cried out. I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. Don't you love that? I do believe. I have a little bit here. But God, I, there's so much I don't know. There's so much I don't believe. My, my faith is so small. God, please, please, I do believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. And in the grace of Jesus, he does just that. In the grace of Jesus, it says, he said to this boy, listen, your spirit that makes this boy unable to hear and speak, I command you to come out of this child and never enter him again. Then the spirit screamed and threw the boy into a violent convulsion and left him. The boy appeared to be dead. A murmur ran through the crowd. Can you be there? Can you imagine it? As people said, he's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and helped him to his feet. And he stood up. Friends, if you like me and you read James and you think, oh my goodness, that's me. I'm the doubter. I'm the Thomas in the story. I'm the father in Mark chapter 9. And you're saying, God, I don't know. I, I don't know how to do this. I just feel guilty because I have no faith. This is how we do it. We, we cry out to God and we say, please, I have a little bit of faith. I have a little bit of faith. But please help me in my unbelief. Would you help me? And look at the response of Jesus. It's so precious. Instead of saying, man, you know what? You had your chance and you blew it. You had your son and all his suffering and all you had to do was have a little bit of faith and I would have healed him. And you blew it. You missed your opportunity. Now you go off home and you explain to your son what happened here today. Jesus has none of that. A generous God who gives so generously. So, so generously. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, even in our doubt, who gives generously to all without finding fault, without reproach, and it will be given to him. And so the big idea that I want you to go home with today, this is what I want you to take home with you. With all the things we've been talking about, I just want to wrap it into this one sentence. Prayerlessness, the true diagnosis for prayerlessness is caused by faithlessness and our response should be repentance. Prayerlessness is caused by faithlessness and our response should be repentance. And that's true even if you don't believe in God. I want to encourage you to pray. Pray and ask Him, just like that father in Mark chapter 9, to give you the faith to believe. And as He does, repent of your unbelief and say, I believe in you, Jesus. That is what his saving is. As we close this morning, can I ask you in your groups, think about these things, ponder them, pray together, 
break bread together. Think about this, this Jesus who's enabled this gentle, gracious approach of God the Father toward us sinners, doubters, backsliders. God bless you. Next week and the week after that, we'll be talking about how to pray. What does the Bible teach on how to pray? Love you guys. Have a wonderful week and God bless you.